we'll now be hearing, hopefully, a message of joy, or rather, the message of joy. If you recall, when last in our series through the epistles of John, we had just finished the opening passage of 1 John. We will be continuing this series in the epistles of John, focusing upon the text and message of 1 John 1, 5 through 10. In 1 John 1, 1 through 4, the apostle John has just told the church he is writing to and us how we may know joy, and that is by knowing, believing, and trusting in the familiar object of joy, the Lord of glory himself, Jesus Christ. Now John moves on to focus upon the message of joy, or the reason why this Jesus is in fact joy to us. This message is summed up in three main points. There is this dilemma, and the deliverance we find in the object of joy. And so as my purpose And the the prior message was the same as John's purpose, stated in verse 4, simply that your joy may be full, is also the purpose of the message today, albeit with a minor modification. My purpose in preaching this message to you is that you may see our dilemma, avoid deceit, and have the fullness of joy as a result of knowing, believing, and trusting upon this message of deliverance and the object of joy Jesus. So again, the three main points were the dilemma which we face, the deceit we use to attempt to get around this dilemma, and the deliverance we find in the object of joy or this message of joy. This is probably a familiar scenario for us as our world is often fraught with problems. There are dilemmas for us everywhere we look, and one of the major issues we have trying to resolve these dilemmas is deceit. There's deceit in wars and potential wars going on. There's deceit in our politics, deceit in our health care, deceit amongst relationships, deceit in our workplaces. And to find a genuinely honest person or to have an incident be unfolded to you in full without someone deceitfully placing their own spin upon it for personal gain is hard to come by. For information or likewise misinformation is a powerful weapon to be wielded for personal gain. However, we often do not get past this deceit and thus cannot solve the dilemma, and so we have not joy. Now, how does this apply to you? You face problems every day, from very little problems to potentially great big problems, and you may be being deceived, unable to figure out or solve this dilemma. Now, John would have us to understand our greatest dilemma and not be deceived either by our own mind or others, and instead be delivered from our greatest dilemma and deceit, sin. By understanding the dilemma we face and the deceit we are exposed to, we may be delivered from this dilemma by the message of joy from the Lord Jesus Christ. So the outline for today is as follows. First, we see our dilemma, and this is that God is light, and we are darkness, or we are not light. Then we see the deceit that man uses to try to get around this dilemma in licentiousness, or self-righteousness, or lawlessness. 
And then we see the deliverance in its message of identifiable righteousness, imputed righteousness, confession, and cleansing. Let's read the word. We'll begin in verse 1. 1 John 1, starting in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. And then we begin our passage for today. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Let's pray. Lord, may you bless the hearing, the preaching of your word. Lord, would you use even the poor attempts of a poor preacher to proclaim your word? For the strength is not in he who preaches, but in the message. O oh Lord, for your word is living and active. It is penetrating. It is mighty. It does its effect. And Lord, may you, by your spirit, cause it to have its effect in your congregation here today. Lord, may we be blessed to understand that dilemma we face in sin. To see the deceitful options that we choose are futile. And, Lord, to turn upon Jesus Christ, who is the only propitiation for our sins. In your name I pray. Amen. So first we see the dilemma. John says in verse 5, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. John starts off this section by saying, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. This should take us back to the previous passage as we consider what is going on. We look at 1 John 1, starting in verse 1, and it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. In our passage today, we see the continuation of John's witness or declaration. John is being a faithful witness. He has testified to the reality of the object of joy in hearing, seeing, and touching the person of Jesus Christ, and now focuses in upon the particular witness of hearing. He witnesses what they have heard in the message of Christ which he now declares to you. 
And without rehashing the trustworthiness of the witness, as we did in the previous message, if you have questions about it, you may go and listen to the prior sermon. But we'll now hear this trustworthy message. And this message comes directly from the mouth of Christ through John. There is direct declaration of this truth. And this is the declaration of truth, the message to be heard, and the dilemma that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This truth is evident in scripture, such as Habakkuk 3.4, which says his brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. It is what we sing about in the hymn, immortal, invisible, God-only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. So God is light, but this is not simply speaking about that way which men view him, or rather, don't view him. But this light is also expressive and probably a display of that which it represents. For God is indeed holy, 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 as we sing. And this holiness, goodness, glory, and separation from sin, which this expresses, is described as light in the scriptures. This sets up a concept which John will employ throughout this passage and the rest of the book. When John speaks of light, he is speaking about God and his glory and goodness and holiness. And you may say, well, what's the dilemma here? Isn't it a good thing that God is light? Isn't it a good thing that God is holy? It's good because that means the God of the universe is just, glorious, all-powerful, the giver of life and light. I would submit to you that it is indeed a very good thing, but it is also a very bad thing for man. For just as God is holy, good, and light, we are not. This is where the true dilemma lies, is that God is light and we are not. There is no text of scripture lauding the goodness of man's nature. Rather, we find the opposite in places such as Ecclesiastes 7.29, which says, See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So from the beginning, we have God creating man upright. They don't have sin, and yet immediately fall. They seek out sin. From the beginning, darkness. And then Genesis 6, 5, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So not just from the beginning, darkness and wickedness and sinfulness, but we are fully and completely consumed by this darkness and wickedness. This is also another concept John uses in his book, and is a continuation of the concept from his gospel, is the use of the term darkness to represent the vile wickedness and sin of man. If you'll turn with me to John 3, this darkness is a further problem, for man loves his darkness. In John 3, starting in verse 19, it says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. In this passage from John, which supports the idea of John's usage of light for good 
and God and darkness for sin, we see the picture of man's nature. And it is definitely not light. But instead it is so dark, he does not come into the light for his darkness and his deeds will be exposed. And this is a common theme of darkness being bad. You know the saying, nothing good happens after midnight. And probably it should be a little earlier than that, really. This is expressive of the truth that those who commit sinful acts and crimes often do so under the cover of night and darkness, so their wicked deeds are not exposed. And when the light comes, they run. And here you can almost see the kind of picture you get when perhaps you've been in a place that has cockroaches and the little disgusting wretches go scurrying away for cover when they're exposed to light. But this is not the worst of it. Man, rather than simply scurrying away as the varmint he is, in his hatred for God and light has condemned the light. We have seen this all through the book of Matthew, right? From the beginning, Herod trying to kill Jesus at his birth, summoning the wise men secretly, deceitfully. The religious leaders constantly trying to trip him up in acts of deceitful questioning. Judas giving up the Lord in his act of deceit under the cover of night. And finally, where we left off last week in the deceitful trials taking place at night in the cover of darkness, preceding the darkest of days in the death of the sinless Son of God. This is the judgment, the condemnation, our dilemma that man, because of his darkness, has not only so hated the light that he flees from it, but we have raised our hands to wound him. So what is mankind to do in the face of this dilemma? Well, John presents a few options which people try to resolve this dilemma. The problem with these options is that they are all deceitful. This is the way of man. Rather than coming unto God coming into the light that he may be saved from his dilemma, he scurries away from it, hissing in anger, retreating further back into the darkness from whence he came. This is the way of man. Rather than submitting and repenting unto God, seeking salvation, the only person in whom it may be found, he sets himself up as his very own king of darkness. He tries to subvert God's order with his very own rules and his very own righteousness, and this will not do. So what is this first deceitful option? In verse 6, John gives the first option man chooses as a solution to his dilemma. He says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. This would appear to be some form of licentiousness, a saying that it is okay to sin, for we have grace, or even perhaps a Gnostic perspective that since we are body and spirit separate, not integral together, that what the body does doesn't have influence upon the spirit, and so what sin we do in the flesh is not accounted unto the spirit. But it's a saying that it is okay to sin, for we have grace, or we are separate from our spirit or is presumptive of grace. This should recall to us the Apostle Paul's message to the church in Romans 6, verses 1 through 2, in which he says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? 
Paul and John offer a warning to the licentious. John's warning is paired up with the preceding sentence describing God and his goodness as light and now places those who walk in darkness in opposition to this light, direct opposition to this light. For John says those who claim fellowship with him and walk in darkness are liars. These two things do not mix. Light and dark do not mix. This is the crux of the issue. For those John is addressing are apparently professors, or maybe those being influenced by false teachers, who say they have fellowship with him, which looking at the prior section, that this fellowship with him would indicate they are claiming to have a knowledge, belief, and trust in the person of joy, for that is the result of that trust, is fellowship with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. But yet these same people are walking in darkness. And John says this cannot be. One cannot have fellowship with he who is light and walk in darkness. This is not to say that one who has fellowship with God may never experience darkness or sin at all, but it is to say that the course of your life, your practice, cannot be that of sin. For such light and such darkness cannot coexist. This is what Paul concludes in his warning to the licentious in Romans 6. Shall we continue in sin? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If you've died to sin, been set free from its bondage, you ought not, cannot live in it. So I'd offer this one warning to two kinds of people here today. You cannot have fellowship with God and walk in darkness. For the believer here today, if you are living in sin, for to say one is walking in is to imply a consistent pattern of unrepentant sin. Beware, for your soul is on the line. Hear the warnings of John and Paul. Heed the words of Peter along these lines to be diligent to confirm your calling and your election. Repent of your sin. Hear Christ. Go and sin no more. Flee to Christ, who is a gracious and merciful Savior, for he will have you. For those professing to have fellowship, but not truly so, yet walking in sin, the warning is the same. You stand in a precarious position, knowing the form of religion, knowing things about religion, but yet without knowing the power of religion. If you are professing this fellowship and yet walking in sin, examine yourself. Be assured of your condition and respond appropriately. And your response is to be the same. It's rather convenient that the response is the same. It is to repent and to turn unto Christ, to extend love and mercy, and to know, believe, and trust him for the forgiveness of your sins. And so have fellowship with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. The second option John gives here is found in verse 8, verses 8 and 10. And it is self-righteousness. Verses 8 and 10 say, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then verse 10, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. You see the self-righteousness in the statements, if we say we have not sinned and if we say we have no sin. This implies the lack of violation of the law. Wouldn't this be wonderful if true, though? 
to not be in violation of the law, to not sin against our holy and loving God. And this is why it is such a grand delusion and why John says, by it we lie and deceive ourselves. This is a persistent problem in history. And it is a problem today as well, such that we have groups like those in the licentious camp, typically non-believers who don't see the heinousness of sin, and thus don't believe sin is such a big deal before they're all loving God, and then walk in it and claim to have fellowship with him. Likewise, for the self-righteous, there are those who deny original sin, and thus believe we can start without sin and its guilt. Or those in the holiness camp, who can and have promoted some form of sinless perfectionism, who say they can attain a perfect sinless life here on earth. And these are similar to, not the same, but similar to the Gnostics who would say that they have a self-righteousness for their spirit is separate from their body. And thus what sin is in their body is not corrupting of their spirit. And these, in essence say they are without need of grace and mercy. This is the problem, is that alongside the fact that we need positive righteousness presented for us, for our righteousness that we would present as filthy rags at best, we start needing and continue to need forgiveness. For we are frequently sinful in thought, word, and deed. But these claiming to be without sin have no need for grace, mercy, or forgiveness. For it is not the healthy a doctor comes to make well, nor is it the righteous person who needs a savior, but rather it is the sick, the sinful for which Christ has came. This claim of self-righteousness is decimating to the soul, for it denies the soul of the one thing it needs to be saved, Jesus Christ. And it continues to deny the soul of the one thing it needs to continue in salvation, the Savior, Jesus Christ. For the sick does not need a doctor, and the righteous does not need salvation. If you'll turn to Matthew 9, verses 9 through 12, this is what Jesus claims. Matthew 9, starting in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In this passage, we get a narrative illustration, a teaching of this concept. For in the narrative, Jesus comes to one who is a tax collector to call him unto himself. And upon the call, the sinner responds. He comes unto Christ while yet in his sin. And at this, many who are described here as sinners, and I assume they may have this understanding of themselves, recognizing their darkness, they come to him. They come unto he who can absolve sin and impart righteousness. But the Pharisees scoff at this. They scoff that the sinless Lamb of God is surrounded by sinners. But when Jesus hears this, he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
And herein is the problem. The Pharisees, blinded by their own delusion of self-righteousness, think they are better than they are. They think they are not sinners. They think they have sacrifice to offer. They think they are righteous. But yet they don't see the purpose of God in history. God's redeeming sinners unto himself by the mercy and sacrifice of Christ. For in their self-righteousness, they are deluded, deceived, blinded from seeing their condition. These self-righteous, thinking they are righteous of themselves, forego the one cure that heals, the one merciful sacrifice which saves. They look upon Christ and say, I don't need your mercy. I am righteous. They reject salvation, for they are without need. And so, what ought you to do, O believer? Be not deceived. First, we must understand and take to heart, we do not have a righteousness of ourselves. We must understand that righteousness we have is a gift and given by the great physician in healing us. We must not look down upon others in their apparent unrighteousness, becoming proud in ourselves as the Pharisee, but rather be humbled by the glory and mercy of God, which bestows righteousness unto us guilty sinners. What about for the unbeliever or false professor who is here? Well, the call again is the same. To be not deceived, your righteousness is only filthy rags, nothing to offer to God. You violate the law of God daily, and though you may lead a good life, your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, whom lived near perfect outward lives. But as Jesus understands and knows the heart, they and you are like whitewashed tombs. Your apparent righteousness may make you look well on the outside, but you are cold, dark, disgusting, sinful, dead on the inside. You must heed the word of Christ in Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. We see this directed towards self-righteous Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He believes he is not only righteous in himself, but he has a positive righteousness to offer as a gift, as sacrifice. He is deluded, thinking he is something more than what he is. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You must not trust in yourself. You must not think you bring something to the table to offer. You must not... Uh, Think you have a sacrifice of righteousness to give, but you must be as the tax collector, humbling himself, acknowledging his sinful estate, and crying out to God for mercy. For if you exalt yourself in your own righteousness, you will be humbled for eternity. But if you humble yourself, casting yourself at the mercy of God, you will be exalted for eternity. The next option for deceit I would present is lawlessness. Well, I believe this verse, 
verse 10 is better subsumed in the category of self-righteousness. One saying we had no sin to begin with and the other uh, that we came to a point where we now have no sin. I believe the phrase, uh, if we have not sinned, helpful and within the scope of the message a little bit to understand another category of denial of sin, a deceitful denial of sin. I think this option for deceit fits in the the general idea John is presenting, and I do not think it is such a leap as John later employs the topic of lawlessness in chapter 3, where he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So this practice or walking in darkness also very well includes lawlessness. And so I think we would be remiss if we did not include it here today. Is it a problem in John's day as it is in our day? And I think it would be useful to address. It is a method of deception that we use in denying our sin dilemma. This kind of antinomianism was around then, just as it is prevalent today. And altogether, antinomianism is lawlessness and a denial of sin. For in the denial of the law, there is no standard given by which to sin. But this is just a deception as the other options, for regardless of the recognition of the law or not, the law is present and it condemns sin. This kind of lawlessness is popularized by, today by proponents of New Covenant theology, who though they are brothers in Christ, deny the law, usually in part, and thus deny their sin, and thus are participating in lawlessness. There are those in the hyper-preterist camps, a heresy of a greater kind, which deny the law altogether, professing that when Christ ascended and or when the temple was destroyed, the whole law was done away with, and as such, we are living in an age without law, and thus no sin. In this understanding, the hyper-preterist cannot but help to say, we have not sinned, for there is no standard to sin against. In this day, there is a notion in a post-Christian nation that there is a God without law or no God at all. And with this God or no God, there is no sin, for there is no law, but maybe the law of happiness. Whatever makes me or others happy is the greatest good. But this is not true, and this happiness is not joy. These are all deceitfully dangerous in their own ways, all very dangerous. For they are all means of deception for us to deludedly say, I have not sinned. And while I'll not give a defense for the perpetuity of the moral law here, nor uh, against hyper-preterism or the simple denial of the law by unbelievers, for this to be outside the scope of the message and our time here today, and others have done an exceedingly better job than I could hope to do. I would like for you to turn to Romans 2 as we consider uh, some of these categories as we consider the position of sinners and even lawless sinners before we move on to the next point. I will warn, it is a a bit of a lengthy passage, and we'll only briefly comment as we go through as it pertains to the delusions of sinlessness. So in Romans 2, starting in verse 2, it says, You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things, self-righteousness and licentiousness. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, and there is God's judgment upon both. 
Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The licentious ought not to presume on God's grace, but to look under this grace as it should, this kindness, and repent. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. We see the reward for the works of Christ obtained in mercy, a righteousness not of our own but of him. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And we see the reward for the works of self, for the self-righteous, for those who have a righteousness of their own, that are obtained in an unrighteous mindset. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Our current point being lawlessness, for those who know the law or not will be condemned for the law. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. There is no distinction in this judgment. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So this judgment is not based on some possession of the law or some hearing of this law, but upon the standard of the law regardless of ignorance of it or regardless of rejection of it. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So regardless of the outside perception or knowledge or acknowledgement or ignorance of the law, men are without excuse, for it is on their hearts. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This last verse is vital. And we will come back to it. But what are you to do in the face of lawlessness and its temptations? I would say to study, to show thyself approved. Know the word that you may not deny the law which God has given. To understand that your actions will be judged based off of the reality of the law, not simply your understanding of the law. And so do not deny the law as the lawless do. But also do not base your righteousness off of your keeping of the law. For that is self-righteousness. As Paul continues, there will be a day when God judges men according to the gospel. And this gospel leaves no room for the secrets of men scurrying in darkness, but requires a coming into the light, an acknowledgement of their sin and darkness. In this judgment, according to the gospel, there is no room for self-righteousness. For the base of the gospel requires a humble understanding of our sinfulness and a humble seeking of mercy from the only one with the righteousness of himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And to say there is no law is a denial of this need of mercy. For if there is no law, there is no need for mercy and no need for Christ. But this is in fact 
the reality. There is a law, and it condemns sinners. But the hope is that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we may humbly seek mercy and receive righteousness according to his works and be converted from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his glorious light. This is the message of joy. This is the message of deliverance, which John teaches here. There are four points to this message of deliverance found in verses 7 and 9. Starting in verse 7, it says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. These points will be fairly similar to points which have already been made. As the truths in these two verses largely present counterpoints to the deceit of licentiousness, self-righteousness, and lawlessness, and then provide the message of deliverance from our dilemma. First, the first truth regarding our deliverance is identifiable righteousness, as found in the first part of verse 7, which says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. I debated where to put this point, as I believe this is the result or the effect of the other parts. But since I've already skipped around enough and it aligns well with the first deceitful option, licentiousness, I'll leave this one where it is. You're welcome. So this part of the passage deals with identifiable righteousness, which could otherwise be and normally is called practical righteousness. But I find this a little more helpful and expresses what is going on here a little better than practical righteousness. I believe what this section does is it uses the righteous behavior of a converted person to identify them. Identify them with God and identify them with the church. This walking in light, as is said, is a direct counter to the first deception. For those deceived in licentiousness claim fellowship, but walk in darkness. Here, the identifiable mark is walking in light. This is indicative of the reality that the Christian life should not be marked by darkness, but rather marked by light. So this implies two things for us. One is that we should not walk in darkness. But we should not only not walk in darkness as a simple absence of sins of commission. We should not only not do what we are commanded not to do, but we should also walk in the light doing that which we are commanded to do. We cannot simply clean out our house and leave it empty. It must be filled with something lest the demons come back and find it empty and it is worse than it was before. So what should the Christian walking in the light be doing? What ought he to fill his house with? Well, first and foremost, it ought to be filled with Christ. It ought to be filled with Christ. And if it's filled with Christ, it ought also to be filled with the good works which he has called us to. Now, this is not so amazing and spectacular as you may be thinking. It is not necessarily posting arguments to the Catholic Church's door, but it is rather the simple things of our Lord's commands. We meet with him in prayer, and we worship him with the brethren. We meet with him in his word. We love one another. We love him and have a relationship with him. These are the things that those who walk in the light fill their house with, that they walk in. 
We walk in a course of life that our practice is not marked by darkness, but light, albeit maybe not perfectly. But this does something important for us. It identifies us not only as those walking in the light, but it identifies us with he who is the light. This is the consistent teaching of Scripture that those identified with God are also marked by righteousness. If we look at Matthew 7, starting in verse 16, we see the recognition of this righteousness aligning with the righteousness of God. Matthew 7, verse 16 says, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. This indicates that those who are of God will bear fruit in accordance with that reality. Those who are righteous will produce the fruit of righteousness and be recognized by these fruits. Likewise, those in darkness will bear the fruit in accordance with their darkness and be recognized by these fruits of darkness. But walking in light not only identifies us as believers and with God, but it also identifies us with the church. John says, if you walk in light, you have fellowship with us. You have fellowship with the church. You identify yourself with others who are marked by light. This whole concept is seen clearly in baptism, in which the believer identifies as such by their action, by this fruit of righteous obedience unto Christ. They identify themselves as a Christian by participating in the Christian ordinance. They identify with Christ by being buried and raised to new life as he They identify with the church in this act and showing the world they are entering into it by the ordinance and sharing in the baptism as all before them have. Jonathan Lehman of Nine Marks describes this as putting on a team jersey and so identifying yourself. Now it's important we don't misunderstand what is going on here. This participation in acts of righteousness, walking in the light, does not make us righteous. And this ought to be dispelled by our understanding of the deceit of self-righteousness. But rather, this identifiable righteousness is the result of the grounds of our righteousness. And that it's being imputed by the blood of Jesus Christ. These are changed actions coming out of a changed heart. But what changes this heart? And surely it is not he who walks in darkness. That's why in the second half of verse 7, it says, And the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. This is what changes the condition of the one walking in darkness. It is the works of Christ imputed to him. This is the fountain of goodness and righteousness which may come out of us. It all finds its source in the one who has redeemed us. For us to practice righteousness we must have been made righteous. For us to bear good fruit, we must be a good tree. This is positional righteousness, which is what the righteousness of Christ imputed to us makes us positionally righteous. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is the great exchange which we read about in passages such as 2 Corinthians 5, and in particular, verse 21, which says, For our sake he made him sin, 
who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In this transaction at the cross, we who are darkness and sin and rebels against God, at the very place we lifted him up to die, experience our greatest mercy at the hand of a gracious God. For rather than doing what any normal human being would do when some lesser creature attacks him, destroying the creature, an impromptu illustration here. The other day I went and visited the Holdens, and if anybody knows anything about chihuahuas, little, little tiny things. And I go in, I'm trying to be nice to the Holdens chihuahua opal. I'm holding my hand down, and she starts biting it, biting it, biting it. And we consider this. I am a 300-pound man, and this is a one-pound dog. I could crush this dog. And yet we see in this very example the loving grace and mercy of God at the point when he should have destroyed human humanity. God takes even the very sin of crucifixion along with all the other sins of his people and makes them Christ's. He shows mercy in the face of antagonism and opposition and condemnation from the sinful creatures. He takes all these sins and he places them on Christ's ledger. He has made darkness. He has made sin and bears the weight of this guilt and darkness and suffering and death and the pouring out of the wrath of God. So the darkness is taken and in exchange light is given the righteousness of God, we are made light. We are made righteous. When the Father looks upon us, he sees the Son, and so he sees light and righteousness. And this is what the blood does, and it is this on which we must depend. It is this righteousness we must look to as the grounds, our guarantee, our hope, not our own righteousness, not our self-righteousness, nor the evidences of this righteousness, though they are helpful in identifying righteousness. This is why the passage in Matthew 7 about inspecting the fruit of the tree is followed immediately by this in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. For while the fruits of the tree are a means to identify righteousness, and while the righteous do the will of the Father, these deeds are never the grounds of righteousness. For these self-righteous look unto God and attribute their right standing with him, their entry to heaven upon their own works, their righteousness and are denied, for they are unrighteous sinners. So how do we receive this imputed righteousness and gain a righteous identity? For this is all very good news. We see we have a dilemma, for God is light, and we are not. We have seen the deceitful ways man typically tries to circumvent judgment, licentiousness, self-righteousness, and lawlessness, and these do not work. And we have seen how we may have joy in the identifiable and imputed righteousness of Christ, but to bring this message of joy into ourselves, to appropriate it, we must know how to receive this righteousness. And this is how we will close, by considering our final two points in confession and cleansing. 
starting in verse 9, it says, if we confess our sins, then we'll carry on in the next point. If we want this imputed righteousness, we must confess our sins. And in doing so, we must make open and apparent unto God that sin which we are walking in, which we may be hiding, for this is the only way. It is only by truth that we are set free. And it's rather silly if you think about it to attempt to hide this from God regardless. I mean, even in children's catechisms, you ask the question, can you see God? And the answer is no, I cannot see God, but he always sees me. He sees us in all of our sin, and yet in his love and his grace... He still loves sinners despite their sin. This is the only way. It is by truth that we must be set free. We must confess our sins that we are not righteous of ourselves, but rather that we are unrighteous and desperately need his righteousness, his forgiveness. We must confess that we have, in fact, broken the law. For it is only the sick and sinner who need healed and saved, and we desperately need Christ We must continue to confess our sins as an act of coming unto Christ, realizing our continued sinfulness and desperate need of his righteousness, fleeing to the mercy of Christ in every step of the walk of life. I think along with this, we must take a holistic approach to the passage, looking at the the previous section, clarifying what this is to confess a little further, or broadening what confession is. It is also to confess the person of joy, This confession of sin and confession of the person of joy, Jesus, is an expression of faith. And this faith is the actuating organ for the reception of the righteousness of Christ. And it is by this confession and the faith which precedes it that we are cleansed. In the second half of verse 9, it says, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is the reception of righteousness, and the imputed righteousness of Christ is the forgiving of our sins, is the cleansing from all unrighteousness. And God, upon this confession, this faith, is indeed faithful to cleanse, to forgive our sins. In Romans 4, if you will turn there, we see this faithfulness to Abraham to forgive sins and cleanse from unrighteousness and apply Christ's righteousness In Romans 4, starting in verse 1, it says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? What could Abraham gain in his darkness, licentiousness, self-righteousness, lawlessness of the flesh? Nothing. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, And it was counted to him as righteousness. By realizing he had nothing to gain in the flesh, and by faith in God, Abraham received righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. We do not wish to receive our wages for these are death. We want mercy and grace. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, indeed, it is by faith in Christ we have righteousness applied. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. 
and by faith we receive the cleansing of unrighteousness, the blessing of Christ's righteousness. So, believer, I would encourage you to put off the works of the flesh, to not depend on your own righteousness, to not trample the law, but to confess your sin and to continue to look in faith under the faithful God who will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And go forth carrying this message joyfully in your heart, serving him with gladness. For the unbeliever here today, you need to know you are being judged. In fact, this is the judgment that you have so hated the light which has come into the world by apathy or by opposition, because your works are darkness, they are evil. You cannot have this sin and have fellowship with God. You cannot have a righteousness of your own. You cannot avoid breaking the law, even in ignorance. This is not something to take joy in, but there is hope. Even if not joy, there is hope. You too may receive the message of joy. You may confess your sins, put aside your darkness, turning to Jesus in faith, and receive his imputed righteousness, for he is faithful to give it. You may have your sins cleansed, and so doing, no joy. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that though we are vile, wicked sinners, though the sinless Son of God, he who is the light, came down among us and we flee and raise our hand to wound him, you in your grace and your mercy have not crushed us, but it pleased you to crush him, that you may bring many sons to glory. O oh Lord, we pray that you would help us to avoid deceit, to not continue in sin, to not think of our righteousness of ourselves, to not deny the law. But in these things, I pray that you would help us not to trust in our own rejection of these things, but to look unto Christ, who is our righteousness who cleanses us from all righteousness and provides us with all the righteousness we could ever need. Oh, Lord, and this is great joy. And blessed are we, your church, who receive the righteousness of Christ. We pray that we would look upon the cross and see these wondrous things as we come every Sunday to remember. Lord, to worship you, to hear your word, of grace and mercy, of a righteousness not our own. Lord, may we in so doing continue in our walk in this life in joy, looking unto Christ and his righteousness in every step. In your name I pray.